0: Welcome to the HSF Fireside Podcast. My name's Liz Poulos. I'm a partner in the HSF Class Actions Group, and I'm joined today by two of my partners, um, Harry Edwards and Ruth Overington, both who are also class actions partners. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about threatened class actions, the how, where, and the why. And Harry, I might start with you. Are you seeing any trends in threatened class actions at the moment?
1: Thanks, Liz. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that we're continuing to see a barrage of threatened class actions. And one of the things that we tend to see is quite early on some sort of notification, often in some public forum, that a particular class actions promoter typically a a law firm, sometimes a funder, sometimes another party, who is instigating uh, an investigation into whether a class action might be brought and is essentially trying to sort of drum up support. And what we're tending to see is actually a a pretty uh, broad mix of whether or not those actually end up uh, in a, a proceeding being filed. Um, and what I thought might be quite interesting for a bit of a discussion amongst us is what we think are some of the sort of key drivers that we see to whether or not threatened class actions actually eventuate into a real uh, class action. Um, Ruth, do you have any thoughts on whether the sort of, if you like, the funding model that sits behind the promotions uh, parties uh, is is one of the factors that tends to um, result in a in a class action actually eventuating
2: yeah thanks harry definitely it's a short answer um so funding obviously for a class action to get off the ground um there's a range of factors that will play into it but one of them is whether there's funding to be able to fund that case through the class action procedure, which is, you know, a not insignificant um, cost that needs to be funded. And one of the things we're seeing and and sort of accounts for why there are sort of different trends emerging in different jurisdictions is that there are different funding models available in different parts of Australia. So by way of example, in Victoria, um, at least at the moment, we're the only jurisdiction where you can have essentially contingency fees for class actions. So in that sense, a law firm itself can fund the proceeding, not on a no-win-no-fee basis, but in fact, by reference to a percentage of whatever the group members may ultimately receive in any judgment or any settlement. And that's quite a unique type of funding arrangement in the sense that it's It's traditionally a a type of funding which is not available for litigation generally. An exception has been made here in Victoria for class actions, and it hasn't yet been adopted in other states or federally in the class action regime. So you've got a situation where that type of funding is available in Victoria, but not elsewhere, at least not at the moment. Query where that goes in the future. So in other parts of of the country, whether it's the federal regime or other states. You're really looking at other types of funding models, so the traditional no-win-no-fee, which is where a law firm charges hourly rates, and they'll recover those um, hourly rates depending on whether there's a successful outcome, whether that be a settlement or a judgement, or they might not recover it. So if, if they were to run the case to trial and be unsuccessful, they would essentially wear that cost and not recover it. Or alternatively, you've got that sort of third-party uh, litigation funding market, which is, you know, has grown significantly in Australia. And that kind of funding sort of, I think, typically now probably is more aligned to a kind of book build or a sign-up kind of process where you've got to actually gather together Uh, at least a minimum cohort of group members who are willing to sign up to make that class action kind of viable for the funder, um, which has its own implications for sort of open classes and closed classes. um, And that kind of decision, which is sort of part of the the question around should it, would a class action actually kick off? And if so, what form would it take? Um, And I know that that's an issue that's that is sort of there's been different trends, if you like, different sort of um, stages through the class action regime's history where we've gone from open to close to open and now back to close. So it's quite an interesting aspect of it um, that does impact um, whether a class class action kicks off and indeed what it might look like. Um I don't know, are there other sort of trends that you've seen, Liz, that that are relevant to this question of whether a class action is actually going to kick off?
0: Yeah, I think that the point you just made about, you know, seeing different trends over time, um, as we've seen, for want of a better word, the demise of common fund orders, um, I I think that has really moved the focus to that book building phase to give litigation funders and other third-party funders the certainty around the returns they're going to get um, from a class action and what that invariably means is you could have a threatened class action for a longer amount of time than we may have traditionally seen before it is actually commenced. Um, so that that's one thing I, I would add on that.
2: Yeah it's a, it's a really important point too because it then leads to if you've got more closed classes then you have the competing class action problem which and as you say it it also feeds into how quickly after that sort of threatened class action might emerge, how quickly that might actually materialise in a claim actually being commenced, whether it's a closed class or an open class, will have a bearing on that.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think the fact that you can have quite long book build periods as well, actually, in a perverse way, sometimes encourages the multiplicity because it gives other plaintiff law firms and funders um, fair... Amounts of time to investigate and do their own book building um, phase um, to commence a class action. So, I mean, I think there are um, positives and, and negatives of yeah this.
1: It's also been interesting to see how, particularly with some of the multiplicity type decisions, meaning that people don't have to sort of rush off to court and be the first one to file, yeah. has perhaps. Encouraged um, a little bit more of a timely consideration of whether a book build is is a is a good way to approach building a claim. Um, I, I've, uh, as you'll have picked up from my accent, uh, have a bit of experience of the London uh, market as well. And indeed, you don't have open class actions there outside of the competition space. So, the book build is very familiar to me, and it, it's it's tended to lead to a couple of things. Firstly. Um, a real need to wait and see on the part of the defendant, very often right up to the uh, limitation period deadlines, before they actually um, can breathe a sigh of relief that a claim hasn't been brought. Um, indeed, many of the class actions that I uh, ran in the UK did have a um, uh, a claim form only issued just right at the very last minute, almost to the day. Um, it's also uh, tended to lead to more work being um, left by the claimants to the regulators to investigate potential regulatory uh, investigations and uh, enforcement actions and essentially jump on the bandwagon of any findings that the regulators make because there is no rush and they can use that as a vehicle to encourage participants to join the book. Um, but also it puts the defendant in a difficult position in terms of trying to sort of step away from those regulatory findings, particularly um, if they've entered into some form of agreement with the relevant regulator. So that's uh, an interesting thing that I've um, observed also.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the regulatory one is a really interesting point as well, because on the flip side, um, you know, if you've got a regime or or a a particular issue that's been looked at, in one forum or one sort of scenario, typically if if any harm has been suffered as a result of that conduct, as part of that, there'll also be some kind of remediation or or steps taken to kind of address that harm. and if you've if you've essentially made whole or 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 dealt with that that harm that's been suffered, that that would have a negative impact on whether a class action remains viable because essentially a class action is to recover loss. You typically wouldn't run a class action just to get a declaration. So if there is no loss, because notwithstanding some conduct has been identified, in fact, any loss that may have been occasioned by it has been dealt with, it may actually remove at least the vast bulk of the, the need for the class action in the first place. So it can have that flip side in terms of that waiting that longer time um, to see whether or not it's worth worth running
0: and, and that issue Ruth, can also arise um, you know d- during a class action as well um, i mean it's not just in that threatened period you, any um circumstance where you've got that overlap with a regular action, um you face that risk throughout the class action one of the other things i just note too is in, in terms of threatened class actions what we're seeing is a greater level of sophistication from plaintiff law firms and funders in the way they market their class action and actually undertake a book build. Traditionally, you might see advertisements in newspapers, but the use of social media and direct marketing um, to potential group members um, is on the rise, and it's something that people need to consider um, in that period and how they're going to address that from a public relations or otherwise reputational perspective given how speculative some of these threatened class actions can be
1: yeah i think gone are the days where um you know one of the key uh, costs of doing business for the claimant firms were you know a bunch of stamps and envelopes um, more like a social media manager to uh, handle the drumming up of support and a more sophisticated platform
2: yeah exactly and it also then puts a sort of a I guess, a need for the the potential sort of defendant, putative defendant in these cases, to be thinking about things earlier than they otherwise would necessarily be thinking about it. Because if there's public um, uh, sort of notification of the potential for this claim, you know, that might give rise to its own questions, including from things like the defendant's insurers. So you need to think about, you know, do you need to engage with your insurers? What's... What sort of insurance might be relevant? Um, What discussions do you need to have? Um, Even if you don't really know what the claim might in fact cover. Um, So it does raise sort of some new novel, I guess, questions for potential defendants to be thinking about in this new day and age of of social media and the like.
1: Yeah, and I mean staff to be able to handle sort of customer queries and. Thinking about how you're going to address shareholder queries, if those are the sorts of, um, you know, cohorts who are potentially group members, you know, it's just it's just not fair, I suppose, to have your sort of frontline staff not ready to respond with queries that arise out of social media campaigns that are obviously nothing to do with you, um, but which raise alarm bells and threats about you, your behaviour over a period of time. Okay.
0: Um, We're probably out of time, Ruth and Harry. Um, I just wanted to say thanks to both of you for joining us today. Is there any any final comments you wanted to make before we sign off?
2: I think the key thing is just to remember that the the class action regime is a very dynamic one in the sense that it is is genuinely continuing to evolve um, both legislatively and through the courts and um, you know as a matter of policy over time so it's one of those areas that you know it's a, it's a important to keep across latest developments as they go because you might need to adapt your approaches things that have worked in the past may need to be slightly tweaked going forward
1: yeah and the only other point i'd add is that every case will be extremely um, specific to the facts of the matter we've talked about some of the, uh, if you like, high level or general points of application, but the the key will be how the particular scenario that you're faced with is going to bear out, you know, what loss uh, might be suffered by individual group members, how many they might be in a particular um, set of threatened wrongdoings, and so really a, a very uh, Piece by piece and bespoke analysis is is really called for, even if you've got um, a handle on the sort of the general and up to date uh, overview of what things look like on a on a, from a landscape perspective.
0: Excellent, thanks Harry, thanks Ruth, thanks Liz,
1: thanks very much all.